Thank you for joining us back here for another Sierra Bible Church class. What did Jesus teach about the Holy Spirit? Wayne Hoyd continues a five-part series answering this very question. Let's dive into this section of the class. Let's turn tonight to Acts chapter 1. It only took us four weeks to get to Acts. <laughs> Thank you, Mick. And I know where you are tonight, Christy. Hiding back there in the corner. I found you. <laughs> Acts 1 1. Again, written by the physician Luke. This is his second book. His first book was the Gospel of Luke, and now we get his writings about the first 50 years of the history of the church. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven." During the Last Supper, Jesus said to his disciples, I am going to him who sent me, but I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. Throughout that evening, Jesus spoke about the Holy Spirit who was to come. And as we have talked in the last three weeks, he identified the Spirit's ministry uh, as being that of convicting, helping, teaching, and guiding. Now, following his death, burial, and resurrection, Jesus added another dimension to the ministry of the Holy Spirit that of empowering the church to be 
a witness for him. Now, we need to remember, and I, I take you back often to some of these verses because the Apostle Peter gives me permission. He said, I consider it right as long as I remain in this flesh to stir you up by way of reminder. And we need to be reminded. And here's what Jesus said to his disciples that night. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, there's an awful lot of religious activity that goes on apart from Jesus. But what he's meaning here, apart from me, you can do nothing that has any lasting significance. It may be a flash in the pan for a moment or a, or a week or a year or, or some kind of a movement. But he says, you can do nothing that has any eternal significance, nothing that's going to last without me. And then the apostle Paul states the same thing identically, but Jesus stated it in the negative and the apostle Paul stated it in the positive, And he said that if we would abide in him, we would be able to do all things. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. These are identical verses. We need to understand that. And the Bible does this many times. It'll state something in the negative and another place will state it in the positive, but it's the same thing. The bottom line is without Jesus, we can do nothing. But with Jesus, he says we can do all things. Turn with me to Luke chapter 24. We'll stay with the good doctor here for a little bit tonight. Luke 24. And I would like to begin reading with verse 36. Verse 24, or chapter 24, verse 36 of the Gospel of Luke. This is uh, the staging here is the disciples are locked in an upper room, scared to death, thinking they're next. I'm sure every time some soldiers march down the, march down the street, they kind of, but they've heard some rumors on this day. They've heard some rumors from some women that said they saw Jesus and talked to him. Two of their number have just returned from a 14-mile trip, seven miles out and seven miles back from a village called Emmaus, where Jesus came alongside and revealed himself to them, and they ran back and told the disciples. There's a whole lot going on. A whole lot has gone on. Jesus' death, his burial, and now could it be? And here's what we get in verse 36. And as they were talking about these things... Jesus himself stood among them and said, peace to you. I think he needed to say that. You know, when somebody the last time you saw them as dead is now standing in your presence and talking to you, you probably see need somebody to calm you down just a little bit. So Jesus says, peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they were seeing a ghost. <laughs> Isn't that great? I mean... I, I love this is, this is so real. This is so real. They had had an example like this out on the Sea of Galilee. Jesus came walking to them on the water one time. And you know what they said? It's a ghost. And here he is again. Mine says spirit, but I like ghost when we're telling ghost stories. And he said to them, why are you troubled? Why do, you, why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, 
that it is I, myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they were still, and while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? Isn't that interesting? I mean, he went right down to some basics here that we can all identify with. And they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and he ate it. He, he ate it. I mean, there's some practical things here. We don't have time to stay there tonight. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. That every, then we've got the whole gospel presentation here in a sentence. That everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. There's the gospel. That's the entire gospel right there in those few verses. And then he goes on, you are witnesses of these things. Of what things? Of Jesus' whole ministry. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. Now here's the command. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Some translations say endued with power, but the Greek word that's used here, enduo, means to sink into a garment. Isn't that a neat? To sink into a garment. And so he says, it clothed, you will be clothed with power from on high, as to sink into a garment. And then he goes on, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Again, some definition here. And I know this is probably not new for many of you, but bear with me because it may be new for some. The word power in this verse is the Greek word dunamis, from which we get our words dynamic, dynamo, and dynamite. Over the years, I've seen people get very excited about this word, but sadly, their day-to-day -day lives didn't, didn't show much dunamis. This is not a word that is meant to be talked about and debated. This is a word that is to be experienced. The disciples had no concepts of dynamos and dynamite. Their understanding of the word did not come from a concordance or from a dictionary. They experienced the word. And what is it that they experience? Supernatural strength and power and ability. Supernatural strength and power and ability. That's what they experienced. And they discovered that of which the prophet Isaiah spoke in Isaiah chapter 40. Let's go there. Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40. 
You can find Psalms in your Proverbs a little bit to the right, you're going to run into it. Verse 27. Isaiah 40, 27. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But, hook up your seatbelts here, but they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. The Hebrew word chalaf is translated in this passage as renew. That's where it says, and those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. But that word has at least a couple of of different meanings, and they're both here. The first one means to change or to exchange our weakness for his strength. This, This is an exchange, my brothers and sisters, when we recognize that You know, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. When we recognize our our inability and his ability. I love the passage in uh, Psalms. It says, he is mindful of our frames that we are but dust. The Lord is mindful that we're made out of pretty flimsy stuff. And we can go south like a duck in a hailstorm if we get our eyes off of him. We really can. And so... This renew, it's an exchange. It's not just, it's him taking your weakness and trading it for his strength. It's like 2 Corinthians 5.21, that he that knew no sin became our sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. It's that kind of an exchange. He takes our weakness and he replaces it with his strength. And then the next one, the, the, the meaning of renew here means to sprout anew. And what it's talking about is the annual molting of a bird's feathers. You know, birds annually go through a thing that, you know, they, they shed feathers and grow new feathers and they're pretty worthless creatures while that molting is going on. They, they can't fly. They, they go through all sorts of things. But I want you to see the results when this renewal happens and you molt those old feathers, you molt the old strength. He says, you will mount up with wings as eagles. This is something that fits us to soar. It fits us to fly. It fits us to be supernaturally things that he wants us to be. Now, who is it that receives this renewal of strength and power and ability? Those who wait upon the Lord. 
And here's where we begin to understand why so few people walk in the power of the Spirit. We're not very good at waiting. We are an impatient people. And we have schedules to keep. And we have places to be. And we have things to do. And if God can't do his thing in an hour and a half on Sunday morning or in our precious few moments of devotional time during the week, well, well. We give him windows and say, there you go, God. Do it there because I don't have time any other time. And he says, who mounts up? Who runs with new strength? Who does not faint? Those who wait upon the Lord. We live in an awfully noisy and busy day. You know, it's, it's really funny. I like to ask people, how often do you shut off your cell phone and take a 24-hour break from it? And they look at me like I just stepped on their iron lung hose. <laughs> and I says, do you shut it off when you go to bed at night? Well, it might... No, Sandy and I don't take our cell phones to our bedroom. They're, they're at the other end of the house. We, we are so chained to these things. We are so in tune with our computers and our phones and our, our whatevers, all of our noisemakers. In fact, many times when we're supposed to be waiting on the Lord, we've got noise in the background rather than silence. Worship music. And I'm not, I'm not saying that to be smart. I'm just saying there are some things that are hindering us from moving in to the heart of God and claiming the inheritance that is ours by the infilling of the Holy Spirit. I have news for you. God's operations are not pinned to your calendar or your day timer. The disciples were simply told to wait until. Wait until what? The answer is, oh, you'll know, brother. You'll know. There won't be any question. But you know what? When they commenced the waiting, they didn't know whether they were going to wait for 10 minutes or 10 years. But they were told not to move until the promise of the Father came. Those who wait upon the Lord have renewed strength. They mount up with wings like eagles. They run and not, are not weary. They walk and not faint. And if we go forth in our own strength, we will faint and we will utterly fail. But if our hearts and our hopes are in heaven and we learn to wait upon the Lord, we shall be carried above the difficulties of this life and enabled to truly lay hold of the prize of what Paul said is the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. 
and the power the disciples received on the day of Pentecost was more, far more than the power to speak in tongues or to perform miracles. And sadly to say, that is where too much of the emphasis is placed in our present day spirit-filled meetings. Sandy and I got a baptism of fire in the in the summer of 1972. We we were we got saved in January and we were part of a Southern Baptist church up until September or October in Portsmouth, Virginia. And then we went to uh Jacksonville, North Carolina, where I was serving with the Marines at Camp Lejeune. We had some friends there that took us to their church, and it was a little assembly of God church. You know, the one on the other side of the tracks. It was pastored by a retired gunnery sergeant. And he pastored that church like a platoon. And it was the only town on the planet that he could get away with it because almost all of his parishioners were either Marines or Navy guys. So our song leader was a Sergeant Major in the Marine Corps. Sergeant Major, one of the most respected ranks in all of the services. You don't go higher than that as an enlisted man. That was our song leader. So it was, but it was full-blown Pentecost. And Sandy and I sat there with owl's eyes. And there was stuff going on in the pre-service before the Word of God that, you know, there were tongues and interpretation of tongues. There were prayer lines where people were getting slain in the Spirit. There were, there were people, you'd be sitting there and all of a sudden somebody would give out a big old war hoop and run around the church about 14 times and go sit down and everybody would go, Hallelujah, thank you, Jesus. And Sandy and I are going, what did we just miss? Jericho marches. The congregation gets up and walks around the room, bringing the walls down. I mean, that's where, but you know what? We hung on because when Brother Stinson got to the pulpit, he proclaimed the word of God with power. And I got to the place that I could hang on through the, the prelims just to get his preaching and one Sunday morning at Jacksonville Assembly of God this one Sunday morning something happened there was not a single manifestation that we were used to in the whole service it was just a song service and it went on much like tonight you know it was just that's how it was Brother Stinson got into the pulpit and preached one of the most powerfully anointed messages I have ever heard in my life. The Holy Spirit filled the place. After the service, we're walking to our car and the scuttlebutt and the that's that's uh, the that's gossip in Navy talk. You know where people usually have their things at the water cooler. Well, the scuttle is the is the drinking fountain in the Navy. The drinking fountain is called the na- the scuttle. And so what happens at the drinking fountain is scuttlebutt. So the scuttlebutt going on out in the parking lot was, 
well, that was kind of a bummer service today, you know, because nobody got slain in the spirit and there were no message in tongues and everything. And I am going, are you crazy? God was here today. And he was here in might and in power. And he, he bared his heart to us. And you're going, really? But it had been missed because some of the other falderah didn't happen. And we'll talk a little bit more about that next week when we talk some about the gifts. Now, I'm going to be the first person to admit to you that the disciples were given power to perform supernatural acts. And I believe that that power still belongs to Christ's church if she can be trusted with it. Acts 5.32, the Apostle Peter says, And we are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God gives to those who... Anybody want to finish that? Whom God gives to those who... Obey. obey. See, we're, there we are. You know, our one-step our one formula. And we are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God gives to those who obey. But tonight, specifically, I want to talk to you about that they were, yes, endued with power, and we're going to talk about that next week, but they were clothed with so much more than the power to perform miracles. And this is what we're going to look at tonight. First of all, they were clothed with moral power. They were holy men and women. They loved what God loved. And they hated what God hated. And they kept themselves unstained by the world. They were endued with moral power. Now, I want to ask you a question, and it's not a trick question, and Amber and Mick. Here's the, here's the question. What is the primary character quality of the Holy Spirit? Sit on your hands, Amber. <laughs> what is the primary character quality of the Holy Spirit? I told you it's not a trick question. What is, no, that's not what I asked. That's one of his ministries. What is the primary character quality of the Holy Spirit? Pardon? Keep going. What is the primary character quality of the Holy Spirit? Holiness. He is a Holy Spirit. That's the number one character quality of the Holy Spirit. He is holy. I mean, what you said is good and true about him, but that's what he does. This is what he is. <clears throat> Ephesians 4, 22. In reference to your former manner of life, be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness and truth. That's the new self. 
clothed in righteousness and holiness and truth. The psalmist comes along the same way and he says, I will give heed to the blameless way and blameless and holy are, are synonymous here. I, I looked them up in both, both old and new. I will give heed to the blameless way. When will you come to me? And then look at this. I will walk within my house in the integrity of my heart. Oh, what a great word, integrity. In my house, we will walk in integrity. And I will set no worthless thing before my eyes. Oh, my, 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 my. Never has mankind lived in a day filled with more worthless and unprofitable things on which to place our eyes. Oh, you're already feeling it, aren't you? He's going to slip right from preaching to meddling now. And you're right. You're right. Because the question is, is how hungry are you for these things? Though we would never think of stealing or murdering or committing acts of violence or committing adultery and fornication, can I ask you this? Can you be entertained by them? Can you be entertained by them? In 1970, before coming to Christ, I went to see the movie MASH with the members of the team that I worked with in the operating room at Portsmouth Naval Hospital. Together we laughed and snorted and carried on relating to much of the humor because it was medical humor, operating room humor, doctor and nurse humor. And we're laughing and snorting and everybody in the whole theater is looking at us like, what is wrong with them? Well, we were getting some things they weren't getting. Well, sometime in the early 1980s, while pastoring in Moab, Utah, I had the chance to see the movie again through a new invention called the VCR. Brand new, just on the market. And then all of a sudden, there's a place in town, they rent videotapes. Can you believe that? I mean, this was a cottage industry that just took off overnight. So I'm there one day at the, the place, and there's the movie MASH. And I remember how funny it was. And we laughed and snorted and carried on. So I took it home. Started viewing it and I was aghast. I could not finish watching it again. Because the spirit of God in me was repulsed by the irreverent and blasphemous humor. And it got turned off. And didn't make it to the end. Same movie different context and the Holy Spirit said come on come on on more than one occasion as I pastored Sierra Bible Church someone would come to Sandy and me and recommend a movie and say it's a must see and so you know you can trust church people right and so we would either rent it or go to it and it culminated by us either shutting off the video or walking out of the theater. Asking ourselves, what were they thinking? 
I mean, they may have told it to you, but they told it to their pastor. They said, boy, you got to see this. And now I'm not a prude. I want you to know by a long, long shot. But I'll tell you what. There's something wrong when we can give ourselves to gratuitous sex and violence and these things. And when I say gratuitous, I mean that which is put into the the line just to keep you hooked. I took all of my children when they were age appropriate to see Saving Private Ryan. There's violence in that movie, but it wasn't gratuitous violence. It was something that was based in history. It happened. I wanted them to see my dad's war. I wanted them to know that somebody bled and died for the freedoms that they enjoyed. And, and the fact of the matter is, is what was shown in that movie didn't hold a candle to those men, what they saw the day they hit the beaches at Normandy. I took my family to see the movie The Patriot, Mel Gibson's movie The Patriot. Again, there was there violence in it? Absolutely, but it wasn't gratuitous. It wasn't Rambo blowing away 473 people before the, in the first 15 minutes of the movie. Or the movies that are made with the gratuitous sex in them, and even so that they can just snip that out and all of a sudden it's made for TV now. Brothers and sisters, how much do you want what we've been talking about? Because here is where we must become ruthless. Especially if we desire to be filled to overflowing with the one who is holy, holy, holy. And know this, the disciples did not display a phony baloney legalism that was rooted in do not taste, do not touch. In fact, Jesus, the holiest man that ever lived, lived too much for the religious class. He was always on the wrong side of something, hanging out with the wrong people, right? In fact, what did they say about Jesus? He's a drunkard and a glutton. Did Jesus sin? This is no, and this is yes. Did Jesus sin? No. So it shows that it is possible to be in an arena that's filled with sinners and and not enter into their sin. And Jesus, the holiest man that ever lived, wasn't some long-faced stick in the mud. People were drawn to him. Children were drawn to him. So our idea of holiness and the biblical idea of holiness have got to be different because we see it as off-putting. The only people that were put off with the holiness that Jesus manufactured and exuded were the Pharisees and the religious sects. The other people couldn't get enough of him. So I'm not talking about phony baloney legalism. I'm talking about real life that's rooted in the life of our Savior. The disciples lived and exhibited holy character, but their lives were overflowing with joy. Somehow we've got an idea that holiness robs joy. No, nothing. It's Psalm 1611. In your presence is fullness of joy. And at your right hand, pleasures forevermore. You you know, we're kind of a pleasure-oriented society, aren't we? You ever read uh, John Piper's book about Christian hedonism? Christians enjoying fully the pleasures of God. 
A hedonist lives for pleasure. A Christian hedonist lives for Psalm 16, 11. In your presence is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That really came out of the lips of God. He's not against pleasure. He's against that which is evil that the world would call pleasure. I better move on or I'm getting in trouble. We know we may have three here next week. They also, along with moral power, they had the power of influence. They spoke with authority and they lived with authority. The world did everything it could to stamp out that authority. The Jewish Sanhedrin could not refute the authority manifested in the lives of a handful of uneducated fishermen that stood before them. That was not lost on them. They hadn't been to seminary. They hadn't been to a rabbinical school. Where did they find, where did they get all this? Eventually, listen, eventually the whole Roman Empire was arrayed against them. When all of a sudden, entertainment rather than a Super Bowl is throwing Christians into an arena and watching them get ripped up by lions and tigers and bears. I threw in the bear part. <laughs> and history, as you study history, is filled with the influence of spirit-filled people. And more times than not, these people are not rich and famous. But boy, you know when they're in the room. Over the past few days, I've been searching the internet frantically, high and low, looking for a picture, a photograph that apparently has been scrubbed from the internet. It is a picture that was taken at the National Prayer Breakfast in Washington, D.C., February of 1994, where Mother Teresa of Calcutta was the featured speaker. I attended the prayer breakfast in 1995, and people were still talking about last year's breakfast. She left a mark. Now, the picture for which I've been searching is one of President Clinton, President Bill Clinton standing face to face with Mother Teresa. Now, we got to understand Bill Clinton is six foot two, and she was three foot nothing. And he's leaning over like this, and here's this little Albanian nun, and she's got a finger, that one, in his face. She had something to say to President Clinton, and here's what it was. Any country that accepts abortion is not teaching its people to love, but to use any form of violence to get what they want. This is why the greatest destroyer of love and peace is abortion. I don't think President Clinton has ever forgotten that day. And while she spoke at a podium like this, this is what you saw. <laughs> and she talked about, her main theme was abortion and what, it, what happens to nations when they kill the innocent. Sitting right here were Bill and Hillary Clinton. And when the room erupted in applause and 3,000 men and women stood to applaud, two people 
were strangely sitting and sitting on their hands. Little Mother Teresa wielded the power of influence. And it was evident that day. They also had the power of resource. They served the living God, therefore they didn't have to grovel or beg. When you serve the God of all things are possible, when you serve the God who has promised to supply all of our needs according to his riches and glory through Christ Jesus, you don't have to grovel and you don't have to beg. With little or no resource, they turn the Roman Empire upside down. And by 325 AD, they own the moral high ground. I am sickened by slick television preachers who beg for your money and then promise you the moon if you'll send it. God's children are not beggars. How limitless are their resources? As limitless as the God that they served. When I pulled into town here in June of 1991, I came to a church that was going through a rough patch. Would that be safe to say, Sharon? John? The church had been through several pastors in just a few years. They were so far in debt, they weren't paying their local bills. I would go around town and I heard more people say, I used to go to Sierra Bible Church than we're going to Sierra Bible Church. There may have been this many people, maybe 20 or 30 more when we first got here. I had elders that were saying, oh, you know, they had, they had, they had mortgaged the farm and they could no longer pay their debts. And they kept telling me, oh, pastor, you got to preach on giving. You got to preach on giving. You got to preach on giving. And I said, you know, God didn't give me a crowbar to pry into people's wallets. So as they kept bugging me, I threw the offering plates out and set up giving boxes at the back door, which are still there today. They're not the same ones, but I set up giving boxes. And if you'd been listening that day, you could hear the howl all the way to Reno. <laughs> oh, Bob and Cheryl were there too. Ah, there it is. We're going to be boarded up. And I said, so be it. But we're going to trust God. And we put those offering boxes out there and instantly the fortunes started turning and the offerings started going up. And people, people are looking at me like, I'm a flim-flam man and somehow in the back I've got, you know, I'm the man behind the curtain and I'm making things happen. I mean, there were times, I had a couple come into my office one day, I'm in the office by myself, they pull up in the driveway, they come in and they say, hi, we're Joe and Sue and we drive by here a lot, we live down in the Bay Area and, you know, we, we've never visited here, but we just feel that God has told us we're supposed to give you this. And they handed me an envelope and had a check for $50,000 in it. We got checks in the mail from somebody that had visited the church a dozen years ago and had just sold a piece of property. And they said, when we were praying, God, what do we do with the tithe on this, what we made? He said, send it to Sierra Bible Church. And along would come another one. And in less than two years, we were debt free. 
And this church hasn't looked back. And it's because we began to seek the one who says, seek first my kingdom and my righteousness and all of these things I will add unto you. And God showed us his miracle working grace. And then somewhere along the way, Terry Heilig was the chairman of our deacon board at the time. And he just got this wild hair that we needed to have a benevolence committee. So he gets up before the congregation one day and said, we have this, we have this desire to start a benevolence fund and benevolence, you know, to help people, not only in the church, but they come here and people in the community that, that need help and stuff. And we just want you to pray about it. And if you'd like to help out, uh, you know, we don't want you to take it from your regular tithe, but if you want to help out, you can write it on a check and put it in the offering box. When the service was over, a little lady walked up to me that I had never seen before or since. And she says, now I know why I brought this. And she handed me a legal envelope felt a little thick and she says I know why God told me to bring this now we talked a little bit and she left I went back to the office and opened it up there was ten thousand dollars of hundred dollar bills in it and that grub staked our benevolence committee our benevolence fund and you know what I don't think it's ever gone below that Andy how's it been doing I mean we give out of that fund to people in the church, to people outside of the church, to people that are coming by in need, tens of thousands of dollars a year. And yet God's on the other end and his shovel's bigger than ours. We cannot outgive him. God's children don't have to beg. Leonard Ravenhill told me one time when I was with him, he said, you know, Wayne, some of these guys on TV and stuff, they have a big fancy mailing list and, and, and all of these contacts. He said, you know, things start going south in their budget they get on tv and put a guilt trip on everybody else that's on watching tv or they send out on their mailing list and he said i don't have a mailing list and if my resources start drying up there's only one place i can go seek first the kingdom of god and his righteousness if it starts drying up he said i'm doing something wrong who's the who's the british uh orphanage guy Yeah, you need to read about him. This guy took care of tens of thousands of orphans and mil millions of dollars in our dollars went through his hands and he never publicly shared ever a need that they had. He laid it before Jesus and it was met. Oh, we serve the God who owns the cattle on a thousand hills. We don't have to beg. We don't have to grovel. We don't have to manipulate. And from where does this moral power, this power of influence and this power of resource come? From waiting on the Lord. This isn't a waiting in which we twiddle our thumbs and wait for him to move. It's an expectant waiting. It's a hopeful waiting. It's an eager waiting. A.W. Tozer said, Christianity takes for granted the absence of any self-help programs and offers a power that is nothing less than the power of God. Do we believe that? We don't need self-help programs. We offer the power of God. Tozer would roll over in his grave if he could see how many Christians are into some kind of self-help trip and that all too often seek their help outside of the scriptures rather than in the scriptures. 
The psalmist said, How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly. Where are we receiving our counsel? Where are you receiving your counsel? From this and godly men and women or from the view? Ooh, ooh. You know, I always wondered how Phil Donahue and Oprah got to be perfect, got to be experts. They weren't experts in anything, but people would sit and fawn and buy their books. That's what this verse is talking about. Do not walk in the counsel of the ungodly. Two weeks ago, we talked about obedience being the key to all of this. Excuse me for bringing Brother Oswald in once again. Listen to this. We talked about the revelations last week. All of, the revela- all of God's revelations are sealed until they are opened up by obedience. Now hang on. One may read volumes on the work of the Holy Spirit when five minutes of drastic obedience would make things clear as a sunbeam. You can read volumes and volumes and volumes and volumes and volumes. But what is it that releases the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives? It's obedience. I love the way he says that. Five drastic minutes of obedience. We'll make it clear as a sunbeam. My brothers and sisters, obedience is the key that unlocks every spiritual door. And I'll bring this to an end with these questions. Could our present day lack of dunamis be blamed on the fact that we are people who do not know how to wait in God's presence until He empowers, He instructs, and He calls us to move? Could our present day lack of dunamis be blamed on the fact that we often receive more counsel from the world than we do from God's Word? Could our present day lack of dunamis be blamed on the fact that all too often we are leaning onto our own understanding. That's our default mechanism. Lean not unto your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. Our default mechanism is to lean on our own understanding until it all gets wrapped around the axle of life and we have to call out, Help! (sighs) Did you get taken? I saw somebody taking a picture of that. Did you get it? I did. I got it. Okay. Matthew 6, 33. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these other things will be added unto you. Again, I understand the context of that chapter is everything up to that verse is talking about physical needs. Food, clothing, shelter. It says, God knows you need these things. And he says, you know what? You're worrying about them. You got a God in heaven who knows every need you have. In fact, you know what the chief characteristic of the unbeliever is? Worry. And here you are, worrying. Then he gives you the antidote. Seek first my kingdom and my righteousness. And all of these things. Well, the, the clothes, the footing, the shelter. 
Do you know that do you know that God knows what the price of gasoline is? And so if it goes up to $6, that's not my problem. It's his problem because he said, if I will seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, I will have the resource to fill my tank. It's not my problem. It's his. And you know, the first time I preached this message to a congregation, Jimmy Carter was president and the inflation went this way and the interest went that way and every way and gas went up to about 70 cents a gallon and people are going, what are we going to do? And I said, Hezekiah 1.1, sweat it not. You can look that up later. <laughs> Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Doesn't, he knows we need these things. He knows. But he says, don't make them your primary objective in life. And so with all my heart, I believe that all these things include spiritual things, emotional things, physical things, material things, relationship things, family things, and so on and so on and so on, as we are clothed from on high with the spirit of power. I've given you enough to chew on for one night. Next week, we'll continue along on He is the Spirit of Power. Thanks for listening to this part of the class. We'll keep posting each session as they're available. We hope God uses them to grow your relationship with Him, and we hope to see you soon.